0: Oh, man, I love that song. I love the desire of that song that I want more than just checking in in life. I love that opening video, if you're here for it, that we're made for more than just checking in and more than just working. We're here for significance. We want a higher significance, a a higher vision for our life. Even we think about planning for retirement, getting retired. We want more than just in retirement, spending our breakfast, talking about what we're going to do for lunch. We are made for more than that. And every once in a while, you come across somebody who seems free. And they seem free from shame, from guilt. More than that, they seem in just a practical life, they're free from overworking. They love work, but they're also not enslaved to it. They're really wise with their money. They know how to save, but they're also not hoarders or stingy. You know, people who who give from their means, they're really free. And I think there's something in all of us who wants that. And today, as we look at the book of Acts, we're going to study and discover a message of freedom. And I think in the same way that every once in a while, it's pretty rare, honestly, you come across somebody who's free and you say, I want what they have, we're going to discover that that is exactly what occurs in history in a time of the Roman Empire during the book of Acts. Luke, who's a medical doctor and also an ancient historian, Luke is going to write this account from eyewitness testimony, and he's basically going to trace what happened between Jesus' death and resurrection to the time at which... We have all these free people walking around talking about how they're free from religion because they have a relationship with God. They're free from shame and guilt because they've found a message of freedom that they have been forgiven of everything they've done, past, present, and future. And with the, there's an emperor, a Roman emperor by the name of Julian, was not a follower of Jesus at all. He said, the thing that struck me about this new Jesus movement is how free they were. Here in the Roman Empire, nobody gives anything to anybody. The Romans had a caste system, so you never would help somebody in a lower caste system. Because you would deplete your resources and be dumped down into that caste system. He said, but these Galileans, that's what he called the Christians, because they followed Jesus of Galilee, these Galileans not only provide for their own poor, but for ours as well. They are generous to their own causes and others as well. So Julian was struck by this new free people of Jesus who were free of of religion. They were also free from some of the typical constraints you see. I mean, do you know people who overgive? What do I mean by overgiving? We usually have one of those in your family. Somebody who loves to give good gifts but they don't have the means to do it. And so you feel bad receiving their gifts because you know they're still paying off the gifts they bought you last Christmas on their credit card. And you're saying, this person is, is very giving, their heart is right, but honestly, they're not free because every time they give, they unshackle themselves to debt. There was an article in Parenting Magazine that talked about how one of the tendencies middle class and upper class parents have is to overgive. We give too much money, too much resources. We don't want our kids to endure pain and difficulty, and so we overgive. And why do we overgive? Why aren't we free to give proportionally but not too much? Because we're shackled to something. I give to my kids because I want them to like me. I give to my kids because I need to be known as a good mom and dad. And so even our giving can be tainted to shackle us if we overgive beyond our means or not for appropriate motivation. The other thing he was struck about these Jesus followers... Is they didn't oversave. Now, the Bible talks about saving, not being a burden on society, saving in such a way to be a blessing to your children and grandchildren. But every once in a while, we meet somebody who's an oversaver. We had one of those in our family. An oversaver, actually, a friend of a person in my family, this guy had saved and saved and saved. Money in his family was never something he could be free. Never went on vacations, never bought anything nice because we could always put more in the bank, always put more in the bank, always put more in the bank. Because i got to wait for retirement. Because i got to wait for retirement. Well, as he moved to retirement, my dad was best friends with him. And my dad, who had retired from public school teaching, did need a part-time job in his retirement. And so they both were up for the opportunity to have this job. It related to their, both their skill sets. He was a multimillionaire at that point, And my dad was needing money to make sure they could pay for my mom's insurance, probably. And my dad, who had been best friends with him for 15, 20 years... He said, well, you know, I really need this job, and I know you don't necessarily need it, and so, you know, if you're okay with it, I'd like to go with it. No, I want to get this job. So this multimillionaire took this job that my dad needed so that he could put more money into his savings account. My dad was kind of hurt by that, but my dad's a pretty forgiving guy, and he forgave him. Just a few years into his retirement, he spent his whole life saving, saving, saving for retirement. Five years into that retirement, my dad was sitting next to him in the hospital bed when he died not a lot of friends pretty embittered family because dad was always about hoarding 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 he couldn't even enjoy the retirement he'd planned for and the one person there by his side as he died the one friend was my father and this message of the book of acts is going to teach us how we can not only overgive but not oversave because saving doesn't have to be your identity it also is going to teach us how to not overspend i was talking with a college student who's tra- who's uh getting a degree right now in financial planning he said i'm so frustrated because i want to be good with money because my parents weren't and my parents weren't good at money so i've been working with them in their budget I'm like mom and dad you're gonna lose your house if you keep this up and they keep overspending and i'm so frustrated that they would overspend because they're going to end up in more shackles than they're in they're not free Some people aren't free in their giving. Some people aren't free in their saving. Some people aren't free in their spending. And some people aren't free in their working. Because instead of just enjoying work, every once in a while you meet people who really enjoy work, but then you meet somebody who doesn't just enjoy work, they're enslaved to it. I was talking to a couple recently, and they were fighting in their marriage about the three things that all couples fight about. Sex, money, and kids. The order changes, but it's usually those are the top three. as we talked about money that day, I said, now, tell me about your financial situation. And they described an incredibly well-to-do situation. And they talked about the blessing of, of inheritance from family members that allowed them to get to this place. I said, well, you guys just spoke elegantly about your blessings. I said, but then you're fighting over money, like, daily. I said, I'd love to help you get to the place you can be free that you can actually enjoy the blessings you have as a blessing. Because right now your blessing seems like a curse in operation. They said, that's exactly right. So what this this message in Acts is going to do is going to show us how something that Jesus brings to the table that transforms the Roman Empire can transform you and I as well. That this message of forgiveness, this message of God's generosity to us, it can keep us from saving too much, from giving too much, from spending too much, from working too much. When you begin to realize who has given you so much, that, that sense of blessedness, that sense of what I've received, begins to unlock you from the shackles of so many different directions. So the book of Acts is divided really into three main characters we're gonna look at: a man named Barnabas, very affluent, powerful man who finds freedom. A man named Peter very influential, very powerful, very uh, rich man as well. In fact, you can go see archaeological remains of his gigantic house by the Sea of Galilee today. And then another man, very affluent man, by the name of Paul, or Saul. And all three of them begin to really wrestle with how much God has given them, and it brings incredible freedom into their life. So let's go back to the drawing board, show you a quick summary to the introduction to Acts, and then we'll dive in. Let's watch.
1: While different apostles do appear in most of these stories, the only single character who unifies the whole story from beginning to end is Jesus himself, acting directly or through the Spirit. And so the book would more accurately be named The Acts of Jesus and the Spirit. The book's introduction recounts how the risen Jesus spends some 40 days with the disciples, teaching them about the kingdom of God. This connects back to the story of Luke's gospel, where Jesus claimed that he was restoring God's kingdom over the world, beginning with Israel. So he called Israel to live under God's reign by following him, and he was enthroned as king when he gave up his life and then conquered death with his love. So the Jerusalem-focused section begins with Jesus' followers waiting until the Feast of Pentecost when all of these Jewish pilgrims from all over the ancient world were in the city. And the Holy Spirit comes on the disciples as a great wind, and something like flames appear over each person's head, and together they start announcing and telling stories of God's mighty deeds. And they're speaking in all of these languages that they didn't know before, but all the people gathered there understand perfectly. And at the center of all this is a story about Jesus' followers donating property and possessions to a common fund to help the poor. Which is really cool, but it seems kind of random for Luke to mention it here, until you realize... That this was a practice described in the laws of the Torah and was supposed to be happening through the Jerusalem temple and its leaders. So Luke's point here is clear. The new temple of Jesus' community is fulfilling the purpose that God always intended for the Jerusalem temple. To be a place where heaven and earth meet, where people encounter God's generosity and healing presence.
0: So Jesus has left, and he said, God has already been generous in providing forgiveness through my death. Now he's going to be more generous by giving you a deposit of heaven to come through the Holy Spirit. And so one of our first characters we meet is a man named Barnabas. And Barnabas has a very, very successful business. Employs many, many people, owns lots and lots of land, great stuff going on with Barnabas. So much so that he has built his barn, so to speak, to do quite well for himself. He has been very, very successful. As he begins to reflect on his life, what Barnabas realizes is that he's come to a place that he could keep upgrading. He could keep getting more and more and more stuff. And there's always more ways to upgrade. But he begins to reflect on everything that God has given him. And as he reflects on everything that God has given him, he realizes, you know what? My life, my business, I've worked very hard for my business, but honestly, the money I have ultimately comes from God the resources that I've been entrusted, I've really been entrusted with them from God. More than that, as he begins to hear this new message of Jesus, not that you, like religion, work and hope that God will let you in, you do good things for good people, and maybe you've done enough to get into heaven, but that God can guarantee through his grace his forgiveness, that you can know for sure you've been forgiven. And that God loved us enough that though we did wrong things, he died for us. And another thing that strikes him is that what God has filled my barn with is even the ability to work. There's this great passage in Deuteronomy that says, God has given you the ability to produce wealth. I love that. Our ability to make money is a gift from God. And Barnabas begins to reflect on, my barn has been so filled with blessings from God. He's given me so much that instead of keep upgrading my barn, I'm going to draw a line and say, I, I've upgraded enough. I now want to be incredibly generous to others like God has been to me. Jesus tells a story about barns. He says, you know, a rich man once had a barn. He just kept upgrading. Tear that barn down, bigger barn, bigger barn, bigger barn, bigger barn. One day you'll be called to account for how you used your resources... And Barnabas realized he wanted to be known for somebody who built a successful business, hired a lot of people, but also somebody who was incredibly generous. He didn't want to overwork. He didn't want to oversave. He didn't want to overspend. And it was when he realized God had given him everything, he got free. So the book of Acts begins in Acts 1-8 saying, God's been so generous to you that I want you to take that message of generosity and spread it around. I want you to spread it. To Jerusalem, your immediate city. I want you to spread it to the tri-county area. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Then I want you to spread it to the uttermost parts of the earth. I want everyone to realize what you've been entrusted with is a gift from God. And you're not holding on to it quite so tight. I earned this. This is mine. It's a gift from God. It begins to unshackle you, just that idea. Peter gives this great speech about how even when we're unloving and even when we don't trust him, even when we're not caring, God loved us enough to die for us. God was so generous in his compassion, so generous in his peace, so generous in his patience. And 3,000 Jewish people trust Jesus and invite his generosity into their life and forgiveness, and they begin to tell others. So much so that in Acts 2.42 it says they would gather together weekly in these small uh, communities called the church and as they gathered together they would share with one another as they found need. And they found that by giving to other people their happiness level went up. They were doing what they were made to do. And so here's what it says about Barnabas now. We're in chapter 4. It says Barnabas, who's also got another name name named Hoseas or something. uh, We'll put it up on the screen. So and Hosea,s who's also named Barnabas by the apostles, gets a nickname. And his nickname is the Son of Encouragement. People are so encouraged to see somebody who's decided to make, with his words and his deeds, giving to others a priority. You would get around this guy, and you'd walk away, and you'd feel built up. He was a son of encouragement. He walked into a room and said, what are people thinking about me? Uh, how people?" He's like wonder who's here I could build up I could encourage how could I be generous to you and he just loved being around this guy he sold a piece of property and he said you know what I could build another business but I'm not going to overwork and I could put more money in the savings but I don't want to oversave this is a portion I want to give to the apostles to assess needs and make sure people are taken care of and folks are so impacted by this they're like you know what I want to be as generous to others as God has been to me. They didn't have to do it to earn the way to heaven. They were inspired to want to do it. So that's what Barnabas finds here. Now, there's a historian by the name of Rodney Stark who writes a book called The Victory of Reason and another book called The Triumph of Christianity. He says, how did Christianity topple the Roman Empire? He said, one of the things is this unique ethic of other-centeredness that came out of an understanding of God's other-centeredness. He said, there were two plagues that hit the Roman Empire in the first 200 years. And most people who had means immediately ran out of the infected areas to be safe. He said, but the thing that really impacted the Roman Empire was middle class and upper class people, professionals, who stayed in the black plague infested area. Nurses and doctors who took children who had been disowned because they were sick, the hurting, the slave, and they risked their own life to bring care and love and medical attention to those who were sick. Many of them at, mo- at great cost to their life. And people said, my own family abandoned me when I was sick. But there was this new family, the Christian family, the church family that loved you when you'd been disowned, helped you when you were sick, were with you f- for rich or for poor, for sickness and in health. But you had a family. And why would they do that? Why would a nurse or doctor stay in a situation where they could get sick? Because these followers of Jesus said the worst thing that can happen to me is death. And Jesus defeated death for me. I don't want to die, but I'm willing to die for other people because it's not the end. So when you see nurses, when you see people who are willing to give their life in military service, there's this idea. Well, if death is the worst you can do to me, and that's my path to eternal life, of course I'll risk myself for someone else. And this transformed the world. It transformed because the Romans had never seen people who cared so much about others. And that's what Barnabas really gets. Barnabas gets this idea that if God gives me everything I own, if I really believe that God gives me everything I own, then what if I begin to act like he owns everything? And now I'm not just saving my money, I'm saving his money. How much would God want me to save so that I can bless future generations? How much would God want me to work so that I can balance all the priorities He's entrusted to me? How much would God want me to spend so that I can enjoy nice things but not be defined by nice things? I'm defined by who's given me everything I own. So this becomes this really freeing concept for for Barnabas that leads into Peter. And with Peter, we get a great question, I think, that's asked, which is Peter gets introduced and it introduces us to another great idea because every time you get together with couples, you see this almost all the time, that couples, I told you about the three things people fight about, sex, money, and kids. Almost every time you're in a a premarital uh, situation, you come across this pattern. One of the people in the marriage really, really loves to save. So every vacation could have been more money in the bank. (laughs) Every chance to buy some new clothes could have been more money in the college fund, could have been more money in the retirement fund. But what Peter's gonna address here with a couple named Ananias and Sapphira is this. Ask yourself if you want to be free from oversaving or overspending, what is your motivation? What do you plug into that drives your saving? There's a lot of good reasons to save. But there is no number that will make you secure. There is no number that will make you secure. And you know that because you originally had a goal of saving a million dollars. You got to a million, you said, well, in light of 2008, I probably need to be two million. Well, maybe it needs to be three. Well, college expenses being what they were... And so what happens is you don't just save. Saving is a great thing. The Bible esteems saving. It celebrates saving. But when you move from saving to over-saving, it's because your motivation is this isn't just saving. This is my security. Or for some of us who are savers, our saving is our identity. We like to tell people, yeah, I save uh, 22% of my income. It's not just something we do. We define ourselves by our savings. And that's why we're not free because it's actually our identity. And the bigger problem is we didn't marry another saver. (laughs) Right, Who do savers marry? Spenders. Now, there's nothing wrong with being a saver. There's also nothing wrong with being a spender. God says he wants us to enjoy the gifts he's given us. In fact, there's a very unpreached verse. When we did our grand opening here, The month before, we invited people together and we had just a big party here. We had an open bar, actually, in the church. We had dance. We celebrated. And I said, you know, in Deuteronomy 14, it says that if you take your tithes and offerings and you can't make it all the way to Jerusalem because it's too far and too rigorous a journey, take the money that you would have given to God at temple and buy beer and strong drink and throw a party for all your friends and celebrate how generous God's been to you. There's an unpreached passage of the Bible. (laughs) Because God says, yes, it's important to give. It's important to give to the church. It's important to give to my priorities. But the heart of this is I want you to be able to enjoy your spending. I gave you these gifts to celebrate it. A vacation is a great thing, looking nice is a great thing. God esteems that. But what's the difference between a spender and an overspender? And this, again, is where we check our motivation. What's motivating my spending? You see, if you are spending because your identity is in what you look like, what car you drive, what house or homes you own, there is no number that will make you feel secure. You can never upgrade enough. You can never have enough homes. You can never have enough nice stuffs Because now you're not just spending to enjoying your stuff and money. You're actually trying to extract from your money and stuff a sense of identity. And whether it's through appearance or the reputation you get from it, you're overspending to fill a hole. And this is why when you begin to realize that God can be your identity, that you can be secure in how he feels about you, how he sees you, you can now spend money. It's just money. And you can look nice because you like to look nice, but it's not your identity. And you can save because it's wise for college, and it's wise for retirement, and it's wise for vacation. But you're not defined by it, and now your motivation unlinks you. And now you're not an oversaver or overspender. You just save and spend because I'm managing God's money. Now back to Book of Acts. So there's a couple named Ananias and Sapphira, and they decide that they'd like to be known as Barnabas, the really generous people. So they sell a piece of land that they own. And they get the money for it. And it would have been totally appropriate to say we're going to put 25% in savings. We're going to spend a vacation in the Caribbean for 25% and we're going to give 50% to the church. That would have been totally fine. But instead they sell it, they put some money aside, and they pretend that they gave it all to the church. And Peter's like, listen, you can fool me, but you're not fooling God you've not lied to mankind, you love to God. Now, this wasn't communism. This wasn't socialism. You have to give it all away. He even affirms the very essence of property rights, uh, which is free market capitalism. He says, property rights. When you had the land, you owned it. It was yours. You owned it. It wasn't like the government owned it. it wasn't like the whole church owned it. You owned it. And when you sold it, it was your money. You could do with what you want with your money. And you could have assessed that. Hey, based on what God's done for me, I want to give this much, save this much, spend this much. So, he doesn't say they had to give it all away. He says, The issue is you're lying. So, why is it? There's a couple reasons. Maybe they lied because they wanted to oversave. We want to pretend we're generous, but we really want to put it all in the bank account. They were oversaving, but pretending they were giving. Maybe it's because they wanted a reputation. They saw how everybody would see Barnabas in the street Hey, son of encouragement! And a nice fire. Wouldn't it be nice if we were known as being that generous? Wouldn't it be nice if we were known as sort of the couple of encouragement? So they pretended to be more generous than they were, but their real motivation was not God's given to me, so I want to give to others. It's maybe we can get our name recognition through this. And it tainted their giving. Well, Paul continues, and Peter continues to just go from place to place to place and tell people about God's generosity, His incredible grace, His incredible forgiveness, His incredible mercy. And as the story continues, the message of God's generosity flows into different communities. And now we're going to make a transition to being a, from a primarily Jewish movement to now God's even going to be generous to Gentiles. Now this is hard for us to imagine because in our place in history, we hear that if you're a Jew, you're not a follower of Jesus, right? That's sort of common vernacular now because of the horrible things done in the Crusades. But actually, at the beginning, the the argument was the opposite. This was a Jewish religion with a Jewish Messiah and Jewish apostles that Jewish people responded to. They couldn't imagine that God would be generous to other races like those Romans and Samaritans. So let's go back to the drawing board. We'll move on to this third movement to see what happens to a new guy, a man
1: by the name of Saul. Let's watch. So Jesus' followers, they continue to multiply, requiring more leaders. And one of these, Stephen, he's a bold witness for Jesus in Jerusalem. And he ends up getting arrested, and he's accused of speaking against and even threatening the temple. And so Stephen here gives a long speech showing how Israel's leaders have always rejected the messengers God sent them, including Jesus and now his disciples. So the Jerusalem leaders are enraged. They murder Stephen and they launch a wave of persecution against Jesus' followers that drives most of them from the city. But it has a paradoxical effect. Luke shows how this tragedy actually became the means by which Jesus' people are now sent out into Judea and Samaria. Now in this section, Luke has collected a diverse group of stories that all show how the mostly Jewish Jerusalem-based community of Jesus became a multi-ethnic international movement. So first is the mission of Philip into Samaria. It's the land of Israel's hated enemies, and many of them come to follow Jesus. Next we have the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, later known as Paul. He was the sworn enemy and persecutor of Jesus' followers until he personally met the risen Jesus, and he then became a passionate advocate on behalf of Jesus. Next is the story of Peter having a vision about how God doesn't consider non-Jewish people ritually impure or unworthy of joining Jesus' family. And so Peter, he's led by the Spirit into the house of a Roman soldier, full of non-Jewish people, and they all respond to the good news about Jesus. In fact, the Spirit shows up powerfully upon them, just as he did to the Jewish disciples back in chapter 2. These themes all come together in the founding of the church in Antioch the largest, most cosmopolitan city in that part of the Roman Empire. And Luke, he tells us that Barnabas, a Jewish leader from the Jerusalem church, went along with Paul to help lead this church community. And so it became the first large multi-ethnic church in history. It was where Jesus' followers were called Christians for the first time. And it's from here that the first international missionaries were sent out.
0: So here we're introduced to a new character, and his name is Saul, but he always goes by Saul of Tarsus. And why is he called Saul of Tarsus? It was a name of great prestige. It would be like me introducing myself as Chad from Indian Hill. Or if you're from Atlanta, Hovind of Buckhead. This was a very prestigious name. And the reason is, is because in the Roman Empire, if you did business in Rome, there were many businesses could operate tax-free as a Roman citizen as long as you're in Rome. You can imagine, the business exploded. The place was packed. So what the emperor decided to do is offer another location in Tarsus where a Roman citizen could also do business tax-free. Well, Tarsus became an exploding place of affluence. So much so that, if you remember Mark Anthony from history, Mark Anthony moves the army here and stations the army here in Tarsus. Because the army's now here, there's this huge business opportunity that they need tents for the army, So they need to make some tents. They need professional tent makers for this gigantic Roman army. We don't know if it was Paul's, Saul's grandfather or father, but one of them probably made tents in Tarsus for Mark Anthony. We know that because Paul tells us that he was born a Roman citizen. Very uncommon for Jews. The only way you could get a Roman citizenship, if you're born it's because your dad or your grandfather either bought it or was gifted it. So Paul was born a Roman citizen, which means his dad or grandfather, who taught him to be a tent maker, probably made the tents for Mark Anthony and either made so much money that they bought the Roman citizenship, or it was gifted to them by Mark Anthony himself. Either way, this allows Saul to go to the best schools. He says, I was taught by Gamaliel, the Harvard of his day. He has influence. He has power. He knows the who's who of everybody. And he spends his life building his reputation as Saul of Tarsus. And part of his reputation is he becomes very, very religious. He becomes one of the most powerful and learned Pharisees. And as a learned Pharisee, he becomes very self-righteous. And despite his success in life, he begins to see these new Christians. He calls them followers of the way. And he says, I want to persecute people who don't believe the way I do. Now keep that in mind, because he's going to totally transform when he sees how God's been generous to him. His life has been, build up my success. In general, I feel self-righteous, and I persecute people who don't believe the way I do. And one of the first martyrs was a man named Stephen. Stephen gives this big speech in Acts 6 about how generous God has been. And how people have a tendency to, no matter what God does, to resist him. And so they go to Stone, a group of people literally take, not, not Stone, I mean they have Stone, uh, Stephen. And as they're killing Stephen, it says that Paul of Tarsus was there holding their coats, consenting to his death. That's what we do here. We kill, we destroy people who believe differently than us. People who haven't, don't come from the same side of the tracks as us. Well, he gets some paperwork that gives him even more power, even more influence. He's on his way to kill off more of these followers of Jesus. And on the way, he comes to Damascus. I got a chance when I was in Israel to see this very location. He falls to the ground, and he hears a voice from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul says, goes blind actually, Who are you, Lord? So he recognizes it's God, but who are you? What do you mean I'm persecuting you? I'm doing your business. I'm doing the religious business of getting rid of these people who don't believe the right way. And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And Saul, number one, is a total attacker of the Christians. Realizes that Jesus is claiming to and speaking as God. Turns his world upside down. But the other thing that turns his world upside down is this idea that he hasn't persecuted Jesus. He's persecuted Jesus' followers. And Jesus says, when you persecute my followers, you persecute me. Why are you persecuting me, he says? Ah. There's this connection that how you treat people is how you treat God. And when you persecute or ignore people, you're ignoring God. So when you neglect your marriage, you're neglecting God. When you're neglecting your kids, you're neglecting God. When you neglect the poor and the hurting, you're neglecting God. And the flip side is, When you treat the least of these, how you serve the poor, the needy, your spouse, your family, you're not just speaking to your family. You're not just speaking to your neighbor. You're actually loving God. And so Paul writes these long letters talking about the body of Christ and shows this connectedness between God and people. And then, Jesus says it's time for a new mission statement. New mission statement, yeah. You've spent your whole life suffering... Long long hours to get yourself a nicer job. Long hours to get yourself an education. Long, you've suffered, without a doubt, to build up your own barn to be successful. The next half of your life, I want you to suffer for other people's sake. And I want you specifically to spend your life going after the Gentiles. Those people don't believe the way I do. That's right. You're going to suffer to love people who disagree with you. You're going to suffer to tell people who disagree with you, racially different from you, politically different from you, how much God wants to be generous to them. And look what he notes here. I want you also to bear my name before Gentiles and kings. I didn't have you grow up affluent for no reason. There's a unique type of person who has affluence and popularity, who has everything in the world, but they don't know real significance Of having a relationship with me. So I want you to take everything you've learned as a person of affluence. And I want you to spend your life trying to draw other people who have everything except God. To find real meaning and purpose. And you won't understand the book of Acts unless you see he avoids the small cities and goes to the big cities to make a big impact. He spends his whole life trying to get to talk to King Agrippa and Felix and Festus. And ultimately puts himself back in prison on a ship. So he can go and try and convert or convince a man named Caesar. Caesar. Because if he could convince Caesar about forgiveness, he could transform the slavery in the entire Roman Empire. And he shipwrecks, and he's snake bit, and he's beaten, and he's stoned. His whole second half is rough. But now he's suffering to serve other people and finds incredible significance from that. It's interesting. Two weeks ago, my... uh, My son, we took him off to college. And it reminded me this week that it was 10 years ago that I was thinking about this day. I'm a long-term thinker. I got married at age 21, and my kids would both be in college, and I knew, and I said to my wife, we will be empty nesters when I'm 44. I'm 44. It was 10 years ago, she said, I feel like God's really prompting me And prompting us, maybe prompting you, I'm not prompting us, to adopt another child. I'm doing the math, honey. We're gonna. I love our marriage, and I can't wait to be free of these kids. I love. (laughs) And uh, I said, I don't. That's that's another reset of ten years. And so I prayed about it. I thought, you know, what I'm really saying is my vision statement life is to be comfortable, to be free. All right, I'm open to it. So as we began to talk about adoption, the one thing I said is, honey, do you agree? I don't think you and I are up to a child with special needs. We're definitely not. So the only thing we marked on the list for adoption is we're not up for a child with special needs. So we met a young girl who had cried her way out of an abortion clinic, decided not to abort the child. We met her. She did the incredible privilege of, of... Placing Quinn in our family. We named Quinn's middle name after his birth mother, Jackie. So his middle name is Jack's son, for Jackie's son. We didn't know he had special needs. So that first six months, you actually try out adoption. It's kind of a weird thing to see if it's the best fit for you. So unlike your own children, you have a chance to undo it. And that first six months, I'm like, oh my goodness. That's during those six months we found out he was blind. We found out he had autism. We didn't know it going in. And unlike A typical family, you have a chance to get out of it. And I wrestled with that. I felt the shame of that. I felt the wisdom of that. I felt the guilt of that. I felt the PR value of people finding out a pastor was thinking about giving back a special needs child. And ten years later, it has been the hardest ten years, or eight years of my life, And yet God has taught me more about life and about joy and about innocence. I would never have chosen to learn it this way, I'll tell you that. But God has taught me incredible things to a young boy that I love. More than that, God saved me from the tragedy Of merely living a comfortable life. Nothing wrong with being comfortable. I recommend it actually. But there is a level of significance that comes when you give your life to others. It's not easy. But there is a level that is so powerful. And Paul spends the next 10 chapters of his life doing exactly that. In light of what God's done for me, how can I not love people who stone me? How can I not love people who reject me? In light of how much grace God's given me, how can I not serve the prisoner and the poor and the orphan? And this message is so powerful because it's not rooted in a religion or a to do list. And for me, it's the same thing with Quinn. It was such an awareness that God adopted me when I was unworthy of his adoption. How could I not go and do the same for others? I was reading the story of Chuck Feeney. Chuck is known as the secret billionaire. He's the most generous man in history. He grew up in a family incredibly impoverished. His mom was a nurse, and after 10, 12-hour days, they could barely make ends meet. She would go and she would give additional hours of service at the Red Cross. And he learned early on how important it was with this Catholic faith to give back to others what God's given to you. Well, he hit it big. He was a genius businessman. And when he got out of the armed services, he realized he could buy um, alcohol duty-free. He said, boy, I-, I should use this as a business opportunity. And he did. He turned it into the business we now know as the duty-free shops at all the airports. The Olympics were coming, I think it was 1964, in Japan, and he set it up at the Olympics. And many coming from Japan could go to these duty-free shops and buy the alcohol or wine that they liked for you know, pennies on the dollar. And Chuck, with his group of friends, began to build and build and build and build the business. Enough, they were making a million dollars a day at one point. Money just coming in everywhere. And at some point, he looked at the money that he had, and one of his lawyers, a good friend for many years, said, You know, Rockefeller had a pastor tell him one time, Reverend Gates... Your money is rolling, rolling, rolling in, and it's going to roll over you and your family if you don't make different decisions. And he decided to answer the big question, how much is enough, and what will I do with the rest? And despite all the people who worked under him continuing to upgrade, he said, I'm not going to upgrade anymore. I love my parties, I love my car, I love my houses. But from this point on, I'm going to start giving it away secretly and not telling hardly anybody, impacting Ireland, specifically where he started, and then the world. He's been one of the most generous men in history, so much so that Bill Gates and Warren Buffett were so inspired by what he did that they decided to give their fortunes away. He really is a modern-day Barnabas, a son of encouragement, that was so inspired by what God had done for him, he wanted to give to other people. And other people said, this is a whole new standard of generosity, a whole new standard of giving. So the question for you and I is do we act like owners of our stuff or do we act like managers? Do we realize that everything we have our talents, our opportunities, our ability to produce wealth our marriages, our relationships are all gifts from God because when you act like an owner you worry a lot you work a lot, you can never have enough savings you can never spend enough, you can never look good enough but if you're a manager you begin to say oh God's given me this I don't have the re- how do I just manage this in such a way that would honor him? And it frees you from the shackles of oversaving, overspending. I saw a TED Talk recently that said, you know, nonprofits and churches are going to tell you that money can't buy you happiness. He said, we studied this in multiple cities for years. He said, and anyone who tells you that money can't buy you happiness isn't spending it right. And what they found in this multi city, multi amount uh, study is that there's a certain point at which upgrading your own life does not increase your personal satisfaction. And yet, you can increase your personal satisfaction. They found that if you spend your money on other people, serving other people, giving to other people, it didn't matter whether the amount was small or large, whatever socioeconomic you're in, there's a certain point at which happiness leveled off when you spend it on yourself. But when you begin to spend on other people, serve other people, your happiness quota went up. It's exactly what Jesus says. It's better to give than receive. It's nothing wrong with having goals, nothing wrong with having upgrades, nothing wrong with having nice vacations. But at some point we need to say, why am I here on earth? Is it just to upgrade my own life or is it to impact the world around me? I'd like to hear somebody who's on that journey right now and what God's doing in his life. So can we give a warm welcome in conclusion today for my friend Jeff? Jeff, come on up. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Chad. So you uh, got to retire early in your career, and you're in that process right now. For many of us, we're dreaming of retirement. And so tell me a little bit what retirement's
2: been like and how you've reflected on God's generosity in your life. Sure. Uh, yeah, back in December, I retired from p after 34 years of service. And I can recall at the time just thinking about all the things that God had blessed me with uh, in my life. And I had this overwhelming sense of just gratitude. Um, I was thankful for my wife, Carolyn, uh, our 30 years of marriage. I was thankful for our three kids, who I was incredibly proud of, including one special needs uh, child, Angela. Um, I was thankful for my job at P&G. I mean, P&G radically changed my life, gave me a much, much better life than I had ever dreamed I would have growing up. I traveled around the world, um, and then I could retire with financial security at fifty-seven years of age, um, both of my sons were uh, out of college, debt-free. Wow. which was a great thing, yeah. and my um, and uh, both of them were either engaged to or married to women that my wife and I both loved. You know, we all had our health, and so you know, I thought about all those things, and and even some of the some of the darker days in my life. Yeah. Chad, I felt like God was always there. Um, there were times like when my, my sons were born eight weeks premature and they were in intensive care for six weeks. Um, my wife and I, we, we've been married 30 years, but we nearly divorced after 10 years of marriage. Mm. My my daughter, Angela, when we found out she was going to be born with Down syndrome, I mean, all these different things brought about fear and, you know, sometimes hopelessness and God was just there, Mm. you know, loving us and surrounding us with, with good people um, that cared for us. And so I thought about all those things uh, at retirement. At the same time, I was reading a book by Bob Blanchard called Halftime, and he talked about exactly what you were saying about the fact that a man lives, you know, most of his life chasing after success, and that was me. But he said, you know, a man should spend the second part of his life working towards significance, you know, focusing outward on others versus internally, and that's what I decided to do. Hmm. And what was uh, some of the steps? We've had a lot of people here have read that book. Uh, it's called Halftime by Bob Buford.
0: Um, what are some of the steps you've taken to start investigating? Because it talks a lot, about this is like a, a, a clear answer. It's sort of no. something you've got to sort of look into. So tell me about how retirement's gone and how you've started to look into this idea.
2: Yeah, that's spot on. I mean, it's trial and error, according to Bob. But I first started out by praying because I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Um, and then I spent a lot of days in my office at home looking on the Internet at different opportunities And I, one day I was in there and I was looking at my online Bible and I went to Matthew, um, chapter 25, Hmm. where it talks about the fact that Jesus calls us to serve and serve the needy, um, those that are sick, those that are in prison. And so I said, you know what, that's what I should do. Hmm. And so I started to, started to volunteer for Matthew 25 ministries here in Cincinnati, um, and then later on, I started to volunteer for City Gospel, and so right now, I'm a, a one of the mentors for a couple of the guys that are incarcerated down there. I teach classes on um, things like responsibility and self-discipline, positive communication. I started teaching at uh, the Correction Center, and then they asked me, hey, could you teach these same things to the homeless men at the homeless shelter? And so... Um, I started to do that, and now I work at the front desk one day a week, um, just being a, a receptionist down there. So most of my time now in, in, in my process or my journey is focused on volunteering. Uh, but I also started to volunteer to help my family, oh. and I never did that as much as I could have when I was with P and G because I was too busy or too blinded uh, to the opportunity. And Fine. that's been really that's been uh, a good experience. And so what are the So Jesus gives us promise and, and, you know,
0: claim support is pretty big in PG. What's the claim support <laughs> that it's been worth it? What are the treasures you've gotten out of this experience of beginning to focus outward?
2: Yes. Uh, that's a great question. I'll tell you that I've loved working for P&G. It was a great company. Um, but there is no feeling like I get when I go down to the homeless shelter or when I'm in the, in the, correction center and i see guys that come up to me and they're smiling and they're happy i'm there and guys are asking me hey would you be my mentor oh, um and it's just a, a tremendous uh, gives me just a tremendous feeling um and i also know and i think i've told you this before i know it's only by god's grace that i'm in my situation and they're in theirs oh, sure so yeah. i want to keep doing those kind of things and uh the one thing i would say is i do struggle at times still being tempted to like um Make a bigger barn yeah. to get a job you know to make more money for my myself and my family, um, but my wife, she keeps me grounded yeah. you know we, we have this habit, and I love when she does this when I leave the house to go volunteer she 'll say, "Hey, make a difference, or she 'll say, Hey, change lives huh. and when she says that i 'm like i 'm on the right i 'm on the right course so i don 't know what i 'm going to be doing a year from now, but right now um, I think i 'm doing uh, what God wants me to do, but also uh, what he gives me to light in. That's awesome.
0: Well, let me pray for us. You know, never has been there a time in our country that's been more divided racially, politically. Never has been there a time when we needed people who would love people who believe differently from us. Never has been there a time when there's been such opportunity to give. And so part of what Horizon's about is developing generous people. And so, yeah, sure, people give because the church is a primary way which God wants to impact the church. So people give a percentage of their income here to Horizon. But we want you to be generous in all aspects of your life mm-hmm. and to fear what God's called you to do inside this doors but also outside as well. So let me pray for Jeff and pray for each one of us and our country as well. Father, we just pray, God, that we would be known as generous people, a generous church, gracious people, loving people. God, that we would be so overwhelmed with your love, concern, and generosity for us that we go and we're generous to stubborn people. Mm. We're merciful to arrogant people. We're loving toward intolerant people. God, we ask that your comfort will come upon those who are hurting in Texas, come upon those who are hurting in our country over racial divides, Father, and teach us how we can be your hands and feet, knowing that whoever we serve, we're actually serving you. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm. Can we thank Jeff for his story? Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate being here. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. And thank you all for being here today. We're going to finish our series next week on Philippians, How to Discover Contentment and What's the Secret of It. Thanks again.